Recovery Elevator episode 450. You know, I did not feel that connection in the office anymore. I wasn't going. I didn't have to get up and get dressed and go somewhere. And that very quickly became a problem for me. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Sarah. She's 46 years old from Buckhannon, West Virginia, and took her last drink on December 15th, 2022. Great job, Sarah. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe Ari chat hosts. You guys do such an incredible job. Listeners, this just in, today is going to be a good day. In fact, today has already been a good day. I'm excited to announce our newest course, Ditching the Booze, Writing a New Narrative, which starts tonight at 7.30 p.m. Eastern, and it's not too late to register. This five-week course helps you explore your sobriety story through journaling and writing prompts. When we drink, it's so easy to get caught up in the roller coaster of thoughts, feelings, and emotions running through our minds. Writing helps to get out of your head, unpack those old narratives, leave them on the page, and begin a new story. Whether you're on day one or 1,000, this course will help you explore the creative process of writing, reflect on, and unpack your sobriety story in a safe place and establish a journaling practice to carry you forward on this journey. Again, course starts tonight at 7.30 p.m. Eastern and runs for five consecutive Mondays. This course is for Cafe Area members only, and there's a link to join in the show notes. Use the promo code OPPORTUNITY. Thank you, Robin. And before we get any further, let's hear from a fantastic sponsor, Exact Nature's safe and healthy CBD-based products are formulated to help you with the challenges of quitting drinking such as addictive cravings, depression, anxiety, and lack of sleep. If you're interested in learning more, head on over to exactnature.com and use the promo code RE20 to receive a 20% discount on your order. That is RE20 at exactnature.com. Okay, let's get started. So we are now four weeks into our 10 episode Q&A series. And today's question is, what are alcohol withdrawals like in the first week? Wow, great question. Thank you, Robin from our Cafe RE Blue group for the question. The answer to this is gonna depend on how much you drink on a daily or nightly basis. And it's not a one size fits all answer, but let's do it. And before I even get into that, I need to mention alcohol is the most dangerous drug in the world to detox from. Many have died from the alcohol withdrawal process. Rest in peace, Nelson Ellis from the HBO show True Blood. Do not take this lightly and err on the side of caution. I highly recommend detoxing under medical supervised care. If you consume more than six to eight drinks daily and have been doing so for several months or years, then quitting cold turkey can be life-threatening, even fatal. Alcohol detox in a medical facility is quite common, and most hospitals do provide this service and insurance covers it. There is a thing called delirium tremens that can start on day two of detox, and this is basically an overload on the nervous system trying to recalibrate, and again, this can be fatal. You can also have visual and auditory hallucinations as well. I remember once in my mid-20s, I was detoxing so bad, I had auditory hallucinations for about three weeks. This is where you hear noises that don't actually exist. Yes, this scared the shit out of me. But on the flip side, 
My auditory hallucinations, again for about three weeks, consisted of the London Symphony Orchestra playing the Braveheart soundtrack. So it was almost pleasant at the same time. Again, do not take this lightly. That is in all caps and all bold in my notes. Okay, so doing this podcast for over eight years, I do know that most of our listeners and most people who quit drinking do so on their own without the help of medical detox. So I'm going to answer this question based off someone who drinks, I don't know, maybe four to five drinks per night or for someone who identifies as a binge drinker. So what are the withdrawals like in the first week? Let's do this. 72 hours is the magical number. Once you hit this number, the worst of the physical component is behind you. Let's talk day one. What's up, hangover? As I covered in episode 447, the hangover is your body having already adapted to the chemical alcohol and your body is yelling for more of it. This is why the hair of the dog is the fastest way to get rid of a hangover, but we're not going there. So day one, you're going to feel like shit. What's up brain fog with a 60 to 80% chance of acute anxiety in the forecast. You also might not have an appetite for the first couple of days. Again, remember the 72 hour mark. Sleep, it's not gonna go well for the first two nights and probably three to four nights. Overall, sleep will return to normal, but it's gonna take some time. In fact, longer than a week, but after three to four nights, you shouldn't be tossing and turning in sweat-soaked bedsheets. In the first week, you're probably gonna have a day where you think the world is ending. You think your life is ending, and the bottle seems like a good idea, but this is nonsense. This is simply your dopamine system seeking a new calibration without alcohol. Trust your body, it knows exactly what it's doing, all you have to do is to not take a drink. So the first week will be a roller coaster of emotions, with some emotions coming back online for the first time in a long time. What's up, tears? Welcome them. It's all part of the process. Let's get real, listeners. This first week, especially the first 72 hours, are probably going to suck. But let's talk about the magical healing process, both mental and physical, that happens not long after that last drink. Mentally, when you wake up on day two, you'll realize you've done something incredible that you didn't think you could do before. You just went 24 hours without a drink. This is a huge win. This would be called a miracle in some rooms. The shame should dissipate. The feeling of loss of control in your life should dissipate. Mentally, the first week is a roller coaster, but things should start to even out after four to five days. So in that first week, two things are going to happen at the same time. Number one, there will be discomfort. There could be a lot of it. I want to be real here. But behind the scenes, mentally, you're gaining confidence. You're saying, wait a second, I'm doing something that I didn't think I could do. You're no longer slowly killing yourself. And the feeling of loss of control, again, should start to dissipate. Physically, the cells in your mouth, esophagus, and stomach begin to heal almost immediately. In my 20s, I had an ulcer in my stomach. I tried all kinds of remedies, including glutamine, to fix it. But uh, what did fix it? Not drinking alcohol. Let's talk the liver. Alcohol will always jump the queue and go to the front of the line in terms of what the liver filters out. The body knows the molecule alcohol is an all hands on deck affair. So after a couple of days without alcohol, your liver and pancreas return to the normal duties of filtering out other toxins. 
Your liver creates bile, which helps carry away fats and other waste. Now that you've gone a couple days without alcohol, your liver resumes these normal processes. A big part of the physical and mental healing is letting the hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal axis settle down. These three organs are in charge of the human body stress response. Cravings and moments where you're triggered begin to smooth out once this stress mechanism begin to even out. Now, I don't want to scare you away from sobriety based off what your first week may or may not even look like, but I want to keep this podcast real. So many people don't quit drinking because of what lies ahead of them the first week. Yes, there will be discomfort, but you're no longer slowly killing yourself. And I'm not sure if you remember Randall's celebration speech in episode 426 after he hit 40 years without a drink. It went something like this. He said, Getting one day of sobriety is harder than getting two. Getting two days is harder than a week. A week is harder than a month. A month harder than a year. A year is harder than 10. And 10 years is harder than 40. Yes, your first week will be the ultimate roundhouse kick square in the goat blocks, but ditching the booze is the most radical form of self-care. The first day is going to be the hardest. Now, let's go a little bit further than just the first week. So the first week is detox, and then you're going to mentally say, wait a second, I think I can do this. The body physically will start rebounding, and then something termed the pink cloud, probably, is right around the corner. Now the pink cloud is when the body, mind, soul, and spirit start to hit a beautiful stride in healing. The clouds lift, the mental fog lifts. You realize anything you put your mind to can be achieved. This is that feeling that we had when we were kids. It comes back you're going to feel superhuman. And more importantly, you're just going to feel like a human being again. You're going to feel like your old self. All right, let's talk weight or LBs. I want you to throw that shit out the window. Some will lose weight when they quit drinking and others will gain weight. Let your body decide what your optimal weight is and don't try to figure this out within your first seven days away from alcohol. Now, harm reduction is a real thing. Reese's Pieces, ice cream, and donuts are your friends in the first week of withdrawals. Same with music and headphones. Same with nature. Same with animal therapy, your dog, your cat. Maybe you got goats. Find some music that gives you strength. Journal and a pen. One of my favorite member spotlights we had in Cafe RE was when someone read their journal entries from their first several days alcohol-free. It was powerful. Get your thoughts, fears, and doubts out of your head and onto paper. In fact, we have a writing course starting tonight. Another tip, don't quit booze and another vice at the same time unless you're a fan of pain. Another tip, go to an AA meeting or join Cafe RE. Do not do this alone. Meet with a counselor or phone your best friend daily or journey listen this podcast. On the cellular level, your body is optimized for routine. Once you make that internal declaration to quit drinking, it's going to feel great. But part of the withdrawals is your body creating chemicals of discomfort to pull you back into the norm. Even though your norm is waking up with a hangover, swearing off booze forever, then drinking a couple bottles of wine later in the evening, that is your comfort zone. At first, your new comfort zone, where you're no longer slowly killing yourself, will be quite uncomfortable. It sounds strange, but those are some of the mechanics of the human body. Now I want you to know that with each passing second without the booze, this is your first week and forever, you're giving yourself the gift of vitality. 
You're saying yes to the miracle of life at face value. You're living life as it is on life's terms. Now the whole alcohol withdrawal process from one week to several months has a term called PAWS, P-A-W-S, or post-acute withdrawal symptoms. Robin, who does the show notes, will include a link in the show notes to a YouTube video I did on this topic. So again, thank you, Robin, in our Cafe Ari Blue group for the question. If you want to have a question answered on the podcast, send your question to info at recoveryelevator.com. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Sarah. There's a phrase in recovery that I like that says, stop shooting all over yourself. Sobriety is a windy road and a journey full of ups and downs. Sometimes we feel like we should be doing better. We have to remember that all of our thoughts are not true and that sometimes our mind gets in the way of the progress we've been making. I like going to therapy so that someone else can help me catalog my thoughts and challenge them when necessary. Sometimes it takes someone else to point out your blind spots and that is exactly what I like about my therapist. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com elevator today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp help.com slash elevator. Recovery Elevator, please help me welcome Sarah. Sarah, how's it going today? Good. Thank you for having me. Thanks for agreeing to come on. I'm excited to visit with you and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, can you let listeners know how long you've been sober? Um, I don't even know the days. 200 and something. My sober date is December 15th. I had just looked at it this morning, but now I, I can't remember. I am so close to seven months. I think I'm two <laughs> days away from seven months. Two days from seven months. That's pretty awesome. How are you feeling? I feel great. I, yeah, I mean, just completely different. I have a new life. That's great to hear. I like milestones. I like a six month milestone for me. It was like a I don't know. It was like a big one. I mean, like, I think every day is a milestone, of course. Right. Yeah. But (laughs) like that's, well, I just decided to like, stop. Um, you know, I, I I do look forward to the milestones. 200 was a big deal for some reason, which just happened. So yeah, it's just a little over 200, but I was like, well, there's no end game. Like there's no finish line. So what am I? So I think after one year, then I'm only going to do annual milestones because, and I liken it to when you decide as a parent that you're going to stop announcing your baby's name in months and start saying that they're two and a half. (laughs) (laughs) That's how I want to start introducing my children in months (laughs) to get a counter. Eight months old. Well, on the cusp of seven months, nice job, Sarah. Uh, Can you let listeners know a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, what you do for a living, age, married, family, things like that. And most importantly, what do you like to do for fun? Okay, so I currently live in West Virginia. I've only been here a couple of years, uh, moved from Ohio, but I've also been, so I grew up in Florida. I was in the Air Force um, when I was 20, so been all over from that. But my last landing spot was Ohio for about five years. And then um, I moved to West Virginia for um, someone I was dating. And 
that's how I got here. Um, I work in higher education, so a local college here, do fundraising. Um, I have two girls and three stepchildren. Uh, my girls are 11 and 13, so prayers for me. <laughs> and for fun, I, gosh, I do a lot of arts and crafts stuff, um, but it could be, you know, today could be crocheting, tomorrow I could be tearing out a wall in my house and painting it. So DIY stuff, plants, obviously, I'm like, I replaced my alcohol issue with a plant issue. So uh, that's, yeah, if I'm not working, I'm I'm messing with plants. In fact, when I go on vacation, my plants do so well because I leave them alone. <laughs> She's a helicopter mom. To her I plants. am a helicopter mom, yeah. I love, like, I, I feel like it's been in the last year, maybe two. I don't know. Maybe it's just showing up more on, like, my feed or the algorithm. But I love seeing, like, how many people are taking in plants. It's, like, becoming... A huge yeah. thing. And I think it's awesome. It's a, there's a rescue. It's a rescue situation out there. <laughs> the first place I go in Lowe's is the plant rescue, which is the clearance section. <laughs> My mom's like, that's not a rescue. <laughs> You're still buying too many plants. <laughs> do you, do you have a, uh, do you have a favorite plant? No, um, I'm super into succulents right now. And oh, there's this account on Instagram that I, follow called this doesn't succulent and she sells like these succulents that are not around here in West Virginia. And I have literally spent $180 in one live stream Instagram from little plants that she's selling, but they do so well. So I, I'm happy to buy these quality things, but they're just so interesting to see if, and you think, you know, they don't need a lot of attention. So that could be my problem, how I'm killing some of them, but I just love to watch when they do something new. Or grow like a baby. Succulents are good for that, like having little baby sprouts everywhere. Um, my wife, uh, a couple of years ago, right before I got sober, my uh, my brother passed away. The only thing I kept from his funeral was one piece lily that an uh, Air Force buddy had got me. And listeners, you're not going to be able to see it, but Sarah, Sarah can see it. It's over my shoulder. I can see it. And for <laughs> years, that thing like limped along. And then <laughs> Carrie, our community manager... Over on the Cafe RE side of things, um, Carrie came out here a few years ago and, and drove with me to our Bozeman retreat. And I said, hey, look at this plant. I got a, I got a lamp by it. And it was like technically alive. And she's like, yeah. that's not a girl lamp, stupid. Like She didn't say stupid, <laughs> but I, I, she's probably thinking it. She's like, that's no, this is not, this is not how you take care of plants. But <laughs> she dropped a little education on me. And now I got, there's two flowers on it right now. And I see it. Thriving. It's thriving. And I'm telling you, like in my plant hobbyist groups, peace lilies are the most dramatic bitches that you can bring. Oh, like, for sure. I don't know why people send that when someone dies, like as though you don't have enough problems. Now you have to deal with this plant that doesn't know what it wants at any time. It's awful. But yours, I can see is you really you're killing it. And I mean, in a good way, <laughs> you're not killing it. I've yeah, I've noticed it gets a little temperamental if I overwater it. It's, I feel like the, like the leaves turn colors and I just wait for it to look like it's having a bad day. Like when it looks like it's sad and yep. droopy, I give it a glass of water and she perks right up. That's not professional. If anybody has a piece of love, that's not professional. That's just, that's the relationship that I got with my girl back here. But all right. And this has been our plant talk segment on this week's episode of recovery elevator. Let's do, uh, Let's do the fun stuff now. Let's talk about okay. what we came here to talk about, Sarah. 
uh, and that's uh, your story with alcohol. Maybe let's start from the beginning, uh, early exposure or your introduction to to booze, and we'll walk forward together. Okay. So I was thinking about this when I agreed to do this podcast. And, you know, when I was in high school and I did not drink, in fact, I told my friends that I was allergic to alcohol just because I didn't want the pressure, mostly because I was terrified of my mother. Um, She just wouldn't, she was very strict and very on me all the time. So it just wasn't something that I was interested in. But I did grow up around a lot of alcohol. Now, not so much my parents, but my grandparents, my great aunts and uncles, they were always um, having drinks, but it was never a bad experience. Like it was always, they were always having a great time, playing cards, spending time together. In fact, I played waitress a lot. One of my uncles had a beer keg in the basement and the kids would kind of fight over who got to go fill it up and who was the best at it, not getting the foam on the top. And, you know, so I did have a lot of early exposure, but I, I don't, maybe it's, that's the reason I wasn't afraid of alcohol because it was always in a a good situation. There was never any ugliness or, you know, terrible things happening. But when I was probably 19 or 20, um, I did start to drink a little bit around other people. And then I was in the Air Force when I turned 21. And, you know, the drinking culture in the military is very strong. Um, All celebrations, all things are around alcohol. We have, I'm sure you know, the coin challenge thing where, you know, you carry this coin and if someone drops it, they buy drinks for everyone. And so I, I probably started, well, I mean, I did start my heaviest drinking in the Air Force. And fast forward to when I spent a year in Korea, I mean, that was the, I, I never drank so much in my life. I mean, going to work still drunk was not abnormal for anybody. Looking back on that, I'm just like, gosh, we're really lucky. I mean, we weren't driving anywhere. We were all contained onto one place, but just there was just a lot of heavy drinking. Fast forward, uh, I had at one point a couple of girlfriends say to me, you know, you drink a lot more than we do. And I was so offended. I remember being so mad and offended and just like, we all drink like this. We all have a good time. I was also much younger than them. Um, so I thought, well, it's normal for me. I don't have kids. I, you know, I'm not married. So it, it, it made me mad. And then just over the course of the next several years, um, I just continued to drink at that normal, you know, it was not abnormal for me to not remember what happened the day before. And and that never really occurred to me that it was a terrible thing. It, but nothing terrible ever happened to me. And I think that that would have, I would have gotten sober so much quicker if I would have had some more consequences. Not that, I mean, I'm so grateful that I, I didn't. And then as recently as maybe 10 years ago, I was having issues in my marriage. We were in counseling and I was not working at that time. And I was drinking like in the morning, I was hiding alcohol. I was, you know, after my kids were on the bus, I was drunk at lunchtime. I would sober up and then I would do it all again. And it was disgusting. And in a marriage counseling session, I said, I'm not going to be able to fix this unless I get some help. So I went to rehab. And even though I did not stay sober long-term after that, um, that experience was beautiful for me. I learned so much. I made lifelong friends. Um, I still refer to notes in journals that I wrote during that time. Um, and then for a long time after I began drinking again, it was, you know, more quote unquote normal drinking. I had it under control. It wasn't morning drinking. I wasn't getting wasted every day. Um, but as we all know, it, you know, it's a progressive 
thing. And just in the last two years, um, I've been through, well, three years I'd been through a divorce. It was traumatic. My husband had an affair, um, moved states, like just so many crazy things happening. And of course, alcohol is the ultimate medication. But I was noticing that I was not being fun anymore. I wasn't just getting a buzz and being a good time. I was starting to be hateful and I never felt good. My skin looked terrible. Like I was starting to get like plaque psoriasis. I was puffy. It was just awful. And in my new relationship, I just thought this relationship means more to me than this alcohol. And so December 15th, I just decided to quit. And I picked that day because I was like, if I can get through the holidays without alcohol, I'm good to go. And by the grace of God and the work, I mean, I I did, I knew when I stopped that I had to engage in a sober community. I don't love AA. So I, you know, that was not a go-to for me, even though I've seen it be very successful for a lot of people, including a family member of mine. That's just such an inspiration. But someone told me about Recovery Elevator and I started listening to the podcast. I joined the platform, you know, fast forward, I've got five sober sisters that I love and depend on directly from this group. And I've had a very easy journey this time. And I hesitate to say that because I know so many people don't, but I'm so glad. And I finally stopped apologizing for it being easy. And I told myself, you deserve for it to be easy this time. Yeah. And I've been going ever since. I want to make sure that we come back to these five sober sisters because I, I know, I know this story, like not your particular story, but I right. know, like I I know versions of this story. And I think that's an incredibly important thing. Well, that's the, that's the cliff notes, Sarah. I want to, the cliff notes. <laughs> I want to, there's a, a couple things that caught my attention that I, that I want to dig into. I think it's important what you said, you know, there's uh, a lot of listeners have early consumption you know, like early usage, super traumatic childhoods and, and these big things that kind of set us off when, when we're younger. And for some people, it might be similar experiences to yours where maybe it's it's not a lot of drinking in our home, but we just have exposure and it just, it can be a, a, a normal thing. We don't necessarily see alcohol as a villain right? or, or this bad. It's just like, yeah, aunts and uncles, grandparents are drinking and it's, uh, you know, my folks weren't big drinkers either. Every once in a while, you know, maybe a couple times a year, they would get a little goofy, but they, like it was never, it was never crazy. It was never wild. Right. And it was it was like when they were together with their friends, playing cards, playing games, you know, and the, all the neighborhood kids would get together, and yeah, it was kind of a celebration. And it's not that it not that it made me want to drink or not want to drink, but it was just like, oh, this is just a thing. It's a thing grownups do. Yeah, yeah, to have fun, right? Yeah. I think it's important to show that we don't have to have that alcoholic in the home to get to a point where we ourselves have, have issues with alcohol. Right. I want to talk about your, your time in the service as well. I think that also, I believe like for me, I was, I had a substance use disorder or alcoholism, whatever, you know, I, I don't mind calling myself an alcoholic, but that's, you know, I was that way before I joined the military because I just I really was a big fan of it. But there's something about when I joined, you're right, it, it is such a big part of the culture. I mean, it's a, a way that we bond and come together. I think that that age, there's some I think we have some sensitivity, some maybe some insecurity. I think that's completely normal. All of us are in this new place, right. doing a new thing at the same time. 
as you started to as you started to drink in the military did did you ever consider not like kind of what what did, was that process like to get into developing that that drinking habit as you were in as you got into the service well it just i mean it was just what we did it was for you know in the early part of my 20s of course i was single and in my 20s and going out every weekend you know so even during those days like i wasn't waking up in the morning and having a drink or you know i was just when we did drink it was too much and it was to the point of blacking out and you know being embarrassed or or even wondering what was said or or done the night before but we were all in the same boat um like like i said especially korea i mean we were just i think there was like 68 of us american air force on a korean air force base we all lived in the same dorm room we all worked and lived together 24 hours a day and that was just our thing in fact we had ration cards you were only allowed to buy so much alcohol per month per person and we had ration cards we would all make sure that everyone was taken care of between all of the ration cards like there were some lighter drinkers but they would make sure that they picked up any extra that somebody else that maybe was a heavier drinker needed and nobody thought that this was insane like it was just how we worked i completely forgot about i was there in when was i there oh four oh five and i completely forgot about the like how many units of like i think it was it was was it just for hard liquor um yes i think so i think that you could buy beer because yeah it seems like like toward the end of the month when everybody's rations for liquor were out like there was a lot of beer drink yeah <laughs> or we would, yeah. So. We we spent a lot of time down in the village. They're like downtown, but yeah, yeah. That's... And Koreans can drink. Like our buddies, you know, our Korean counterparts would take us out, and I mean, you think you can drink? They would drink you under the table. Older men, like you know, men in their fifties, sixties, seventies, could just crush you. Yeah, that's there's definitely an element. Uh, I think I mean I think there's an element to that in every society, right? But that yeah, we came across a few dudes who could throw down for sure. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's uh, there's something interesting about that that overseas dynamic. It's it's almost like it's almost like what you do doesn't matter. Yeah, like it doesn't matter there. It's you're away from you're away from home. It's this short you know short tour. It's a a year long assignment. It doesn't like it's fine. It doesn't. It, it is, and it's the same like with relationships. I'm sure that you saw this or experienced it yourself. I don't know, but just like even people that are married just don't behave like married people. And um, you know, I remember I worked. Of course, I was a medic, so I worked in the clinic. And I remember these guys coming to me like before they're going on their mid tour to go home to their wives, wanting me to treat them for STDs. I'm like, absolutely not without a test. Like I'm putting you through that whole test. And if you are, you know, if you're positive, I'm calling your wife, you know, stop messing with people. But yeah, it's just, it is a completely different, uh, it's a out of your normal life experience. Yeah, it's. It really is. A, I mean, there's a ton of us, a ton of us who have been been through that. But when you compare that to the people who who haven't, I think there's pr- probably more people who haven't had that Korean short tour. But what's interesting is we think we treat it as if it doesn't matter, right? Like this is an isolated thing. A lot, a lot of times, I've I feel like we we treat things like that, like they're just oh, it's it's a night out, but it's a year. It's a it's a year of our yeah. life, which is substantial, and then. 
the the come home the return the return home that did you feel like you noticed you know the sarah who left for korea and then coming back a year later um when you were reintegrating back to you know stateside normal living did you notice that any changes had happened to you yeah i mean i well i didn't think i had changed to be honest but um, I was transitioning between Korea and coming back to the States. I was transitioning from active duty to reserve. Um, so I moved back into the area where my mom lived. My mom noticed, you know, how much heavier my drinking was, how much more often, how much tolerance I had. Like I could drink a lot and handle that um, for someone that was you know, thin and just I, I could drink most men under the table at that point. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do that too. Yeah, for sure. At this at this point, were you uh, were you married yet? Did you have married with any kids no. yet? Nope. Okay. So when you came back, was there was there any sort of uh, like did it did your drinking taper off or did you just continue at that kind of escalated cycle? You know, no. I mean, I I don't think that I think it definitely tapered off. I went back to kind of a well normal. I would say you know more weekends. I I probably would drink a cocktail or two or three at night, but um, I don't really remember like exactly what my routine was at that time because it was so, there was so much transition going on, but I definitely wasn't, I mean, I missed Korea because of that, you know, like, cause there, there wasn't like constant partying and what are we doing after work? You know, it was just back to where people behave like normal humans. And so there, I remember there being an adjustment and me missing that and missing those friends. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably like a, two-sided there's the you know i mean obviously like the partying part of it is is fun and, and enjoyable you know we kind of forget about the tough stuff but there's also that um you know with that there's that that fellowship and that camaraderie that you know we're, we've done something or we're doing something that's challenging and unique and difficult together and to to step away from that it, it can be tough to reintegrate for sure so uh going forward uh you had mentioned that later in life that you had, you had gone to rehab, you had gotten married, had a, a couple girls. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe can you can you set the stage for us a little bit as to like leading up leading up to that rehab? Like what what caused your your drinking to elevate to the point, build up to that that rehab moment that that got you into there? Well, I think I mean I uh, wasn't working outside of the home. I said that I wasn't working earlier, but I actually was working, but it was just from home. I was still doing my job um, from, we had moved from North Carolina to Ohio. So I was still doing the job that I had done there, but in a remote capacity, which was difficult. You know, I did not feel that connection in the office anymore. I wasn't going, I didn't have to get up and get dressed and go somewhere. And that very quickly became a problem for me. Depression, you know, I've always been like kind of on the borderline of having depression and I need to be Um, held accountable. I also have ADD. So it's very easy for me to not stay on track. And when you don't have to get up and be somewhere and there's no one expecting you at a certain place, it's super easy to get into very bad habits. Um, So that was going on. My husband had been deployed several times while we were in North Carolina. I don't remember how long we were in Ohio before he did his first deployment, but we just were not in a great place. And, you know, I was day drinking. There's just no other way to say it. I um, 
yeah, the girls would get on the bus and I would, you know, just do a couple shots and just get, you know, feel good and then start my day. And also that's another thing, like I'm very active when I was drinking, like I could drink, get my whole house clean top to bottom. Sometimes I'd stay up all night, just like deep cleaning and doing these major projects, which was the, you know, the, the not bad thing that was happening. I was just turning, you know, making things great, but I was wasted during that. And it wasn't good. I wasn't sleeping right. I wasn't fully present for work. I wasn't fully present for my husband and my kids. And I had even, um, so embarrassed to say this, but like was communicating only, you know, through email with like an ex-boyfriend and getting attention and validation uh, in that way and being disloyal to my husband. Um, you know, I used to always think, well, I didn't cheat on you, but it most certainly is the same thing just because you're not physically doing something. But I was just so clearly at that time in my life, I was seeking something more attention from my husband, um, more, you know, I was very successful at work. So it was hard to go to where my work environment was just me. And there's nobody telling me all the time, how, what a great job I'm doing. I wasn't able to cut up and interact with my coworkers. So it just was a spiral of before I knew it, you know, I was, buzz driving even to the liquor stores and going to different stores because I didn't want the person that worked there to see me so often or to see me at that time of day. Like there was this one particular place that I would go that I didn't care about. That worker did not seem like somebody that I needed to worry about what they thought of me or something. So I'd go there if it was too early in the morning for normal alcohol purchases. I mean, yeah. it's just crazy. Like the, the time and energy spent in just thinking of all of that is ridiculous. Yeah. I think a lot of us have had that, you know, gosh, it's just, it's, I mean, it's like looking back, it's silly, but yeah, that like the rotation, all right. Tuesdays is going to be this place. Wednesdays is going to be this place, you know, right. Oh, got a party. You got some friends coming over and they're, I'm sure they're looking at us like my ass. Nobody's coming over to your house. This right. is for you. Exactly. Um, and the drinking that, the like rock gut brands, like that was when, you know, cause I am, you know, I think I'm fancy. I think I deserve a higher level of everything in my life. And I'm drinking like pop off yeah. vodka. And I'm like, okay, this is an issue. <laughs> the consonant soup. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I think I relate a lot to what you said too, about like needing, needing some structure, you know, as you were describing just kind of that work from home environment, and just the like the feelings that you were talking about. Yeah. I can appreciate what you're going through, you know, wanting kind of having a longing for connection to people and and to have a, a schedule and a structure is, you know for some of us we do we do better like with that and with too much too much freedom it can you know it could make some weird side turns yeah and just you know even with the with the you know reaching out to people from your past i think i think that just shows that there's you know we we can hit these points in our life where we like we just want to feel like we're enough, right? Yeah. And we just want we want to feel validated, and it's 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 hard if we're if we're in a relationship or a situation where it's for, for whatever reason, you know, relationships are dynamic and complex. But it's you know if we're if we're if we're not getting that, we we just want it, and I think that just shows that that people like that's what people want is to feel connected and to feel valued and, and to feel like they're a part of something and. If, if we don't have that, we can, you know, we can either 
reach out for it in places that maybe we don't want to, or we can numb ourselves to it. Right. Uh How long was that cycle before you got to a point where you uh, tried rehab? I would say probably a good year, like a solid year. And then, yeah, again, like I said, I was sitting in the marriage counseling and the, actually the counselor, the time that we had been there before said that she smelled alcohol in my breath. And I was like, that's ridiculous. Now, truth be told, I had been, I had drank that morning, but even my husband like defended me. He was like, well, she drank last night, but she, you know, she's not drinking now. That was a crazy, you know, I, I am just now remembering that session. Um, and the next time that we went, I mean, we just started talking about hard stuff and I just stopped the session and I said, I, I'm not going to be able to do this until I stop drinking. And I, I can't do it by myself. I need help. And I mean, kudos to the Air Force system. We were at a counselor on base. My husband was active duty and they did very quickly get me into a facility not far away. And off I went with hopes of like, I'm trying to think now, like I was not, I did not have the conviction at that time that I had when I quit drinking this time. Like I went, I was looking forward to a break. I was looking forward to finding like, I was hoping that I could become sober, Yeah, but I don't think I was all in. Yeah. Were there any lessons from that, from that time that you spent there that, that stuck out or that maybe shifted your perspective on like what you thought addiction or, or alcoholism, or was there anything that, that stood out during that time that maybe shook you a little bit or, or, or changed the way that you thought about alcohol and, and its use? Yeah. I mean, we, when I was there, there were uh, both alcoholics and drug addicts. I remember, um, and I did my classic thing. Like I'm not as bad as several of these people. That was my thing in AA. I would always go and think, well, I'm, I'm good. But yeah, just hearing their struggles, connecting with them, you know, knowing that things that they were saying were the same things that I was doing or or saying and dealing with. But many of them had been through so much, like so many terrible things had happened to them. Some were there against their will, but the, you know, we just all connected. I remember that experience was just so great. I was so connected with those people. Um, I'm still in contact with many of them, but then also some of died a particular guy that i just loved so much and i had such high hopes for ended up passing away uh probably a a couple years after we had been there and he was an alcohol user um i guess i did not realize how drug addicts i've i've seen them die alcoholics not as much um but the lessons that i learned there like i said i still I still refer to those. I still pull my journals out. Um, in fact, I just went to a memorial service a couple of weeks ago for someone's son who had died, uh, drank himself to death. And I happened to live in his house. Uh, I rented this house from his parents. He had lived here before his death. Um, I since bought the house like a week ago. Um, but his mother had people reading things that he had written when he had gone to rehab one of the times. And I came home and I pulled my journals out and I just saw so many similarities to things that he was writing. And I know what he was feeling that. And I, I wrote his mother and I just said, you know, she she had made a comment that she was so glad to see so many people there because he had lost all of his friends at the end. And I, I just wrote to her and I said, you know, those people didn't not love him. They were either protecting themselves, keeping from enabling him 
exhausted. You know, we are exhausting people. And I shared my, um, my story with her, which I had not shared. And I just said, I just came home from that service and I read a lot of my journals and I just see so many similarities. And I just want you to know that there's nothing you could have done. Like he, he really wanted it. It just didn't happen for him in time. And, and maybe that, you know, me living in this house and it having been his, it's why I'm having such an easy time. Maybe he's helping me, you know? So yeah, rehab was great. And it, it didn't stick that time, but I suggested number one for anybody that has the option. If you need to go, or if you're having a hard time, then you need to go. It's uh, it really is a special place. It's, you know, you know, not all, all facilities are created equal, of course. Um, but yeah, I, I was very fortunate and blessed too at the place that I went. I, I loved it. I met some amazing people. I got some, some education, learned a little bit about it. That kind of helped with the shame component. Yeah. It's, I, I loved it. It was absolutely worth it for me as well. When you finished, were you able to, uh, were you able to accrue any time after getting out or, or. Yeah, yeah. I think I went, um, well, I, I can tell you the first time I bought alcohol was new year's Eve of that year. Um, new year's day is my husband and I's anniversary that night. I remember thinking about it all day. Um, just wanting some champagne. I can just have champagne. So if I, I went to rehab in October, so to December 31st was the time that I had um, stepped up and and I just talked myself into it and I didn't ask my husband permission. I just went to, or not permission, but I, I didn't say anything to him about it. So I can't say whether or not he would have talked me out of it or helped me through that craving. I just went to the store and I just bought four mini bottles of champagne mm-hmm. and uh, we drank them. And I don't remember if he was disappointed. I don't remember at all his reaction to it. And I don't remember the next time that I drank after that, but I was, you know, drinking again, but not, you know, what I would consider a normal, a normal amount. And then it, you know, over time progressed into, and I I would have times where I'm like, oh gosh, I'm drinking way too much. Um, I I have got to ease up. Like the, the rehab, the time in rehab was like, I knew when I was getting in the danger zone. So I would back off and that went on for, a long, long time. Now, were there times that I got too drunk? It, of course. But for the most part, after rehab, for a very long time, I felt I was being a normal drinker. Yeah. Kind of shined a light on it to to try to keep you, you know, in the in the lanes, right? Yeah, it was like accountability, right? Yeah. It's hard to, um, it's hard to take away that knowledge. Like once we, you know, Paul has often said on the podcast, he's like, you know, you listen long enough, I'm going to ruin drinking for you. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you can't, you can't unlearn some of that stuff. I mean, maybe, right. maybe you can, but like, once you know it, you know, if you enter back into some of that behavior, you're like, I see what I'm doing here. And it's, yep. you know, we got to make the decision. Am I going to, am I going to keep doing this or am I, do I, do I pull back? So would you call that like a, like a, a, a moderation phase? Yes. It was my attempt at changing myself into a normal drinker than a problem drinker. Yeah. But once I was, once I resigned myself to like, you are not a normal drinker. You never will be you. You know, I hate subscribing to the idea that I am sick forever. I think that that is such a turnoff for me. I don't, I have a hard time saying I can never do, I can never do something. Not I will never do it, but when I tell myself I can't do something, it's like I have this weird brain thing where I have to prove it wrong. You know, like, oh, yes, I can. I'm an adult. 
I'm a grown ass woman. You know, I say all of those things. <laughs> I can do whatever I want. So I don't say I'm, I, I don't think I'm sick. I do have a problem with alcohol and I need and hope to not ever drink again. You know, I think, I think words matter, Sarah. And it's, and for whatever reason, there's certain words that hit, that hit us all differently. And if, if you're, you know, if you're in the Sarah camp where, you know, you, you, that language is a, is a turnoff to you or, or you find it challenging to, to, I don't not comprehend, but like, if, if it just like, if it doesn't relate, like, right. I think that that's, I think that that's okay. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. There's, we live in a great time where there's, there's a ton of, there's a ton of quitlet. There's a ton of podcasts. There's a, t- like there's, is when it comes to talking about how to get sober and people sharing their experience of how they've got sober, there is so much information out there. And I think we can find, I think it's important to find people who are, who are speaking words that resonate to us. I believe that whether it's, whether it's AA or Annie Grace or, or some of these, you know, there, I mean, there's so many like really wonderful authors. I think a lot of them are saying the exact same thing. I, like yeah. I, I really do, but it's, but if it doesn't, you know, if that language, if it's not our language, if it's just whether the style of the writing or the specific words, if it's, if it's not your jam, try something else because like there's, there is something out there. There, there are people who can, can share that share in a way that's going to click with you. And, and that's, I think that's one of the beautiful things about this show is that, you know, guests like you come, all of our guests come from somewhere different. I think like I always say sobriety is having a moment right now. I mean, it's, it's a great time to get on the vibe. There are, you know, all the things that you said. And, but I also warn people to be careful about, well, I don't like AA, so I'm not going to go to it. Well, what do you not like about it? So you have to be very careful about finding what works for you and making excuses for things. Yeah. Um, you know, I read there was somebody in our group that had posted something about like trying to get into a program and it was just every, every different thing was a problem. The wrong doctor came in the wrong, this, the, and just, I'm just going to do something else instead. And I just remember cautioning that person to, you know, ask yourself and, and it may be, you know, she may not be making excuses, but I say, ask yourself, are you, are, is it, are you finding this to be conveniently inconvenient? You know, is it, are you going to let any small uh, in inconvenience be the excuse for not doing it? So, so when I started, you know, realizing I need to quit, look, okay, I know AA isn't my thing, but what do I know? I know I have to do, be connected. I know I have to engage in a sober community, whatever that looks like for me, I've got to find it. And someone told me about RE, I listened to the podcast. I was immediately in, like I, I felt connected and I, I joined the platform and, um, you know, I follow a couple of Instagram accounts that are like creative sobriety and pardon my language, fucking sober is one of my favorites. Cause it's like, you can be oh, mad about having fuck. to be sober for a minute, but, but you have to engage in it and you have to find these people and these things. I mean, TikTok is loaded with, with people that are sober and just every day tell her, you know, tell their story and give you a little blip. And so that's my AA, but it has to be something. It doesn't have to be AA, but it has to be something. Yeah. We live in a great time. There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of communities. There's a lot of people who are, who are just speaking out the memes like fucking silver is. Yeah. 
there's i just love it's a lot of it's kind of beating the beating the hell out of ourselves just because right. of the things that we think or the things that we say or the things that we've heard at meetings or that we've said ourselves but it's like you know what it's it's a good like rule 22 let's not take ourselves so serious let's have a little bit of fun mm-hmm. with this joke around right. like recognize it because there's some it's challenging this it's yeah. incredibly challenging so it's cool that there's places like that out there that we can just kind of laugh at what the hell what the what the hell are we doing right right and, and you know i've seen aa like my i have an uncle that is like my inspiration two of them actually that are fully all in AA. And these are like one of my uncles bless his heart was just somebody that I didn't even know how deep his issue was. And I look at him all the time. And I think if this guy could get from where he was to he's the most beautiful sober person, like it's been, you know, over 11 years, and he's just a great inspiration. He's, you know, can say the perfect thing at the perfect time and and get you through it. But he's all AA. And that's great for him. So I do see it working. Yeah. Try a lot of stuff out. Try a lot of stuff out. Have an open mind. Look for that thing that speaks to you. Uh, Sarah, before we, we, man, we are getting close. This time's zip by. Uh, Before we do uh, rapid fire, I said this in the beginning. I wanted to make sure that that I got to this. Um, You mentioned your five sober sisters. And I I have an idea of when somebody says something like that, I was like, oh, I think I know what this means. who who are your five sober sisters and, and just what is what is this relationship what is what does this mean to you yeah tell us about that this relationship is a, a lifeline for me i met one of them aaron on my facebook group for re she was in that group she knew someone else sarah um she knew someone else molly she knew someone else you bet and we just connected through marco polo we, so we use the Marco Polo app. We send each other videos. We do, we talk about everything. Just like, oh, today I'm having a shitty day. And this is what happened at work. And, you know, my husband sucks or whatever. But, <laughs> and it's so funny. I've never met them in real life. Like, I've, never seen, I've seen their faces because we do our videos. But I've never been around them in real life. And I would literally do anything for them. If one of them needed me to get in my car and drive to where they are today because they were having a, a moment, I would. And so would they. And it's so crazy to me to think about it, like how this happened, but it happened quite organically. And we have just kept each other accountable, share, you know, one of us has, has slipped during our connection and, you know, three of them, you pat her on the back, pick her up, dust her off, tell her she's okay. And then, you know, there's me, which I'm, I'm kind of the hard one of the group. I'm like, absolutely not. I cannot believe you did that. And here's what happened. And you can't be mad at your husband because you asked him to help you not drink. And then you asked him for permission to drink. And now you're mad. You know, so we just all have the the right advice into a perfect salad of, you know, of what to say. And we just love each other. And I'm, I'm 100% dependent on them. I love them so much. I would do anything for any of them and they would me. And I'm lucky to have found them. There's something beautiful about, you know, we say it all the time. We say it all the time on this show. We talk about connection, 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 connection. And when we can, when we put ourselves out there, we're exposing ourselves to people. That's a, sounds like a weird sentence, but we're, you know, we're exposing parts of ourselves to people in the, in these communities. And I think naturally we, we start to gravitate, whether we're jumping on meetings or, or posting in a group, or if we're at something in person, 
we start to realize, Hey, like me and this person and this person, like we kind of, you know, we've got some, some things in common or we just, you yeah. know, like we just have a, a connection and, you know, these people become our chosen family for yeah, sure. And there's even, even people on there that I'm not connected to outside of the group. You know, there's a few on there that I I've seen struggling and I, I literally think about them all the time. I, I wake up and I think, how is this person? And I go see if there's a post from them and how they're doing. It's just a really great, you don't, when you first join recovery elevator, you don't think that that Facebook group is going to be such a, a big deal, but it is a big deal. And, and I'm glad it's there. Yeah, me too. Very grateful for it. Sarah, we are at the rapid fire round. Sister, in 30 to 60 seconds, I'm going to ask you to answer these questions. Are you ready? Yes. Uh, so very game show like. <laughs> yep. We're going to be, there's going to be some music playing. We're going to get the whole thing. <laughs> what is your biggest fear as you were thinking about quitting drink, drinking? I thought I would not be funny or fun anymore. Yeah, that's a common one for sure. What is a positive that you didn't expect in your life without alcohol? Um, to love my, the way I look again, like my skin, my hair, my body is completely different. And I, I walk by them and I'm like, Hey, body, <laughs> like, what's up? I just keep, I would tell uh, other friends that are thinking about getting sober. I'm like, listen, I wake up hotter every day. There's nothing better. I love it. What is your go-to alcohol-free drink? Um, grapefruit, uh, seltzer. Like I have one right now and I don't even know what brand it is. I don't like LaCroix, so it can't be that, but it's something, a sparkling seltzer with grapefruit. Doesn't like LaCroix, six demerits. Listen, that stuff tastes like it rode on a truck with a strawberry in the front seat. It does not taste like the fruit it says. Um, right. I'm going to my <laughs> sponsor about this resentment next week. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, <laughs> I get it. That's not for everybody. It's more for me. That's I'll have yours. Uh, Sarah, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Just to keep doing the work. Um, I did think about this the other day. Like I, it's, I haven't been engaged in the chat, so I need to make a point to get in some more chats and also to, um, start thinking about how I can serve others. Nice. Very nice. What parting piece of guidance can you give to our listeners who are early in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Just talk about it and reach out, um, especially reach out on the Facebook group. There's so many people that can help you that have the same experience. But also talking about it, I find around me, um, when I get brave enough to tell somebody that I'm sober and talk about it a little bit, I find that other people are curious about getting sober also. And in fact, I have a friend that um, just told me the other day, okay, I'm ready. I, like, I want to do it. She's been trying like little stints here and there. And she's just decided that alcohol is not for her. And I, I think that my story and my sharing recovery elevator and things like that have helped her make that realization. So just, you're not going to be alone. Sobriety's having a moment. I love it. And last, but certainly not least, Sarah, can you give listeners, you might need to ditch the booze if line. If you're deciding which store clerks that you care about, if they think you're buying too much alcohol or not. If you're shopping for a place to shop, it might be time right. to think about it. Sarah, thanks for your time. Thanks for coming Thank on the you. show. It's um, been great. I appreciate it. I really appreciate your openness and honesty. Thank you, sister. Thank you. Recovery Elevator, thanks for listening. And thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. You're going to help a lot of people today. I wanted to throw out one last reminder that this Thursday, October 5th, is the Recovery Reinvented Conference. 
In-person and online attendance is 100% free, and you can find all the information over at www.recoveryreinvented.com. Let me know if you're going to be there in person. I'd love to meet up. A little over a week ago was the official start of fall. Bring on the pumpkin spice, the hoodies, the flannels, the soup, the cider. I'm here for it. In North Dakota, fall lasts for about 45 seconds, so this reminder is as much for me as it is for you. Get out there and play. Hit up the pumpkin patch, wander the corn maze, pick some apples, do whatever other cliche things that fall is famous for. Slow down, take a breath, and enjoy the moment that you're in. You're the only ones that can do this, RE, but you don't have to do it alone. I love you guys.